Father, thank you so much for being such a great God, one in whom we can put all of our trust and all of our hope, one in whom we can rest in completely, we can have great peace and salvation and satisfaction in you. Forgive our dull hearts for constantly turning away from you, from looking to the idols of the world, for looking to ourself for satisfaction and peace, and for turning away. Help us to see you clearly this morning. Help us to see your Son and the work he completed upon the cross, giving us life and giving us salvation. Give us eyes to see the great grace that is poured out in our lives, the many blessings we endure, the many blessings we receive, even as we endure times of hardship, we know that is all for our good and for your glory. Father, we ask that this morning specifically you'd be with those who are suffering right now. We know there are many in our church, given this past week, who are suffering in many different ways. I ask that you'd be with them, you'd be gracious to them, that they would be looking to you in all of this that you would be in our nation right now in a time of great trial and what it seems chaos, that you would use this time for them to look to you, that they would look to Christ upon the cross and find that he is the answer to all their problems and worries, that he is the one who can bring life, peace, satisfaction, and joy, and salvation. I ask that you'd be with our like-minded believers around the world, that they would also continue to look to you, that they would continue on that narrow path, that they would never turn away, that their eyes would be fixed before you on a daily basis, that we would all be remaining in you, Father. Help us to see and hear you now. Use me and my wretched and wicked tongue to proclaim your great mercies and grace. I'm so thankful, Lord, that your word does not return void. Even if I mess everything up today, Father, your truth remains true and steadfast, and we can take great hope and courage in that. So be with us this morning, we pray in your name. Amen. If you've not already opened up your Bibles, please open up to Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. This is a very common passage, mostly heard from as Christ teaches to it in John chapter 3. In this passage, we see the people of Israel grumbling against God and being discontent over the many blessings that he has given them. And this is ultimately revealed to be because they have stopped looking to God and have instead looked elsewhere to find their satisfaction and their joy. And I think that this theme of looking away from God into something else describes the plight of man and many in our day and many, sadly, in the church. All around, we see that we as a people are longing and looking to something to satisfy the aching in our hearts aside from God. We have rejected the blessings of God and have rather looked unsuccessfully for satisfaction elsewhere. We live in a time where we are always looking for that next thing, looking to that next phone to bring satisfaction and all those great updates, looking to that next career change to bring peace and stability, looking to that next world leader to bring about real change this time 
looking to the next doctor to provide answers and comfort during a pandemic. And really behind it all, we are simply looking to the next idol to bring satisfaction and salvation when we know that it never will be able to do that. God can give true joy, satisfaction, and life for all who look to him. So the question then is, what are we looking to? Will we look to God or will we be like the people of Israel who grumbled and turned away from him? The main point of this sermon is this. Man's discontent deserves God's wrath, but God provides salvation for those who look to his son. I'll say that again. Man's discontent deserves God's wrath, but God provides salvation for those who look to his son. I'll be explaining this in three points. One, man's discontent. Two, the punishment of discontent. And three, looking to Jesus. My hope at the end of this is that we would find ourselves daily looking to Jesus, knowing and seeing that he is the only hope of salvation and the true satisfaction of our souls. The so point number one, man's discontent. Before we dive into our passage, it's important to give a little bit of context of what is taking place with the people of Israel. Uh, many scholars believe that this event takes place towards the end of their 40 years in the desert, probably around the 38th year. They are continuing their way to the Promised Land and are camped at Mount Hor, which is about 150 miles north of Mount Sinai, and then another 150 miles from the Jordan, where they will eventually cross over with Joshua into the Promised Land. So geographically, from Mount Sinai, they are about halfway there. Aaron, the brother of Moses, had previously died at Mount Hor and was buried there. And Israel had, within probably the last year, come off a major victory against the Canaanite king of Arad, of whom the Lord delivered into Israel's hands. And the passage shows in verse 4 that from Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. Now, as they are nearing the end of their long journey, enjoying the blessings of God's faithfulness and protection over them, you would think that the people of Israel would be filled with great joy and thankfulness for all that God has done the past 38 years. But, Sally, that is not what we see. For we read in, first, in verse 4b, the people became impatient on the way. The New King James is a little more accurate in the Hebrew when it says the people became very discouraged. Why would they be discouraged after all this? What could possibly lead to their complaint after all that God has done for them in providing for and protecting them? Food. Simply, they're complaining about their food. We read further in verse 5, And the people spoke against God and against Moses, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. The people of Israel are ungrateful once again for the food that God is providing, which is the manna from heaven. Their ungrateful hearts reach a boiling point, and they express their soul-felt dissatisfaction by lashing out against God and Moses for their monotonous diet. However, what makes this story different from previous complaints, it is not a lack of food that causes their grumbling, but rather it is the food itself that causes them to grumble and to be discontent. We read that in the latter part of verse 6. We loathe this worthless food. The word for worthless in the Hebrew describes the food as miserable and contemptible. 
To them, it is so detestable. They claim that it is the equivalent as if they had no food at all, as we see in the first part of verse 6, for there is no food and water. They were so discontent with the food that God had provided. To them, they said it was as if we have no food at all. They are claiming that the gracious gift of God is miserable, worthless, contemptible. For about 38 years up until this point, God has been so gracious to his stubborn people. Every morning they awoke, and there was manna. Every morning they gathered what they need, and they were perfectly provided for. None went hungry in Israel, all because of the gracious hand of God. And how do the people of Israel respond to this gracious care? They despise God's gift, they curse God and curse Moses, and wish they were back in Egypt with their former slave masters. Their sinful, discontent hearts were looking back to enslavement in Egypt instead of looking to God and his great gift. In case you've forgotten from our study of Egypt, remember, or our study of Exodus, remember their life in Egypt. It was one filled with pain, with sorrow and difficulty as they served painfully under the strict and ruthless hand of Pharaoh. They were put to hard labor, they endured unjust treatment and punishment, and were killed routinely. They had no hope of salvation until God intervened and delivered them by the hand of Moses. He freed Israel from this life of torment and spoke to them of a land filled with milk and honey that would be theirs. He spoke of them to the promised land. Yet when the heart of man is so set on rebellion and discontentment, even the greatest gifts of God will lose its savor. Their hearts were so hard against God that even the gift of salvation and provision was not enough for them. They looked back to the life they had in Egypt and they longed for it instead. They longed for a life of oppression rather than freedom and they fixed their gaze on something other than their precious Lord. Now, before we are quick to judge Israel and their evil discontentment towards God, is this not the plight of mankind? Mankind is always looking for satisfaction in something other than God. We are often finding ourselves rejecting the good promises and gifts of God in order to indulge ourselves in sin. This is a story that has been repeated many times, going all the way back to our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden. In Genesis chapter 3, Verses 1 through 7, with their encounter with Satan in the garden, we read, He, the serpent, that is Satan, said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse 6, listen with all your might. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Adam and Eve were blessed beyond measure. They were given the freedom to eat of every tree in the garden that they desired. God had richly provided them with all kinds of food that would perfectly sustain them. Most of all, they were blessed with his very presence. He had gifted them truly beyond measure so they literally needed nothing 
else. Yet through the serpent's cunning words, they started to doubt the promises of God. They believed that God's gifts were not good enough for them. They didn't think they should have any restrictions. They wanted more. Their discontent hearts wanted more than the perfect gift of God. So what did they do? They looked to the fruit, which they were commanded not to eat from, and it pleased their eye. They ate of it. They took their eyes off of God and set their gaze on the forbidden fruit and evil desires. We see this same story over and over again in the book of Judges, where Israel again and again turns to do, quote, what was right in their own eyes. They fall into judgment. They cry out to God. God delivers them with great mercy and grace. He gives them salvation from their enemies. And what do they do? They look back to their old ways, and they follow them instead. And again, lest we be quick to judge Israel or Adam and Eve, we find that we are no different. Romans 3, 10 through 12 says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one, what? Seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Saints, if we were to honestly examine our hearts and our lives, we would find the same longing and looking for something else other than God. God provides us provision, yet we look to our income, our savings account, and our retirement plan to provide for us. God offers us peace, yet we look to a stable career, to hobbies, and a house with a white picket fence. God offers us satisfaction. We look to money, to sex, food, entertainment, and that Instagram-like. God offers us protection. We look to law enforcement, the military, and politicians, and we've recently seen how that fails miserably. God offers us salvation. We look to ourselves, our own good works, and our own religion. God offers us himself, and we look to sin and death instead. God is so good and so gracious to provide us with all his blessings. He created us that we might enjoy him and may live in perfect and complete harmony with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And yet we have hated him and his blessings and have instead looked to the carnality of our own hearts. Proverbs 26, 11 speaks well of us. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. We see the gifts and blessings of God ever before us, but instead we look to the vomit of sin and we return to that instead. We have seen man's discontent. We see how we are always grumbling, discontent, and looking for something else other than God. It is in our very nature. And what is God's response to this? Point number two, the punishment of discontent. Verse 6, we read, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. The people of Israel expressed their discontentment towards God, longing to go back to their former life of enslavement, being ungrateful for the blessings that God so richly poured out upon them. So God sent fiery serpents as judgment upon Israel. It is believed that the snakes earned their names because the bite they took would leave a fiery red mark at the bite site 
and would burn terribly due to the poison that they injected, eventually causing internal bleeding and death. And you don't have to be a snake hater like me to realize what, how terrible this punishment is and how severe this punishment is from God. These snakes were the very embodiment of death to the people of Israel. Just as the serpent in the garden brought death to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, so too did these serpents bring death to the people of Israel as a result of their rebellion against God. The fierce, righteous anger of the Lord was embodied in the serpents as they painfully bit many, which led to their certain death. Now this may seem severe to you, you say. Israel just wanted some different food. It's hard eating the same food every day for 38 years. If you're like me, you don't like leftovers after two days. That gets tiring. Weren't they able to simply express their feelings to God? In the Psalms, we see David lift up lament and complaints countless times to him, but God doesn't send a flock of cockroaches to take him out. So what's the difference here? What is the difference between Israel and a right lament to God? As we previously looked at, this wasn't just Israel getting tired of some food and telling God about it. They were being ungrateful for God's blessings. They were cursing God. They cursed Moses. They longed to be back with their enemies. This was not merely a punishment due to their complaint, but rather God was punishing them because of the condition of their sinful hearts. Okay, so Israel was in the wrong. We see that. But doesn't it seem severe of God to send many deadly snakes to painfully bite his own people so that they will face a slow and painful death? That seems not fair of God. It only seems severe to our modern ears because we have lost sight of who God is. This is the creator, the almighty, all-knowing, all-present, all-existent God. Perfect, holy, powerful, the one who with one word spoke all things into existence. The one with a mighty hand delivered the people from slavery and from death. The one who split the Red Sea, saving Israel from certain death while also destroying their enemies. The one who created man from the dirt in his own image, breathing life into his nostrils in order to enjoy life with him. And this dirt from the ground, with the very breath of God in his lungs, curses him for the blessings he gave them. Did their sin deserve such a punishment? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The people of Israel rebelled against the holy God, and so they rightfully deserved death as the consequence for their behavior. God punished their ungrateful hearts, but more importantly, he punished their turning from him and their longing for a life apart from him. And that is the more grievous sin here. It was grievous that they were complaining and they were ungrateful for God, but what was more grievous is that they were looking back to their life of slavery in Egypt and longing to return to it. It was a rejection of God himself. And as a result, he brought judgment upon them. This is not the first time we've seen similar behavior and consequent punishment for mankind looking to sin instead of to God. We are turned back to the garden, Adam and Eve, 
were listening to the voice of Satan the deceiver and looking at the fruit that was forbidden, when their lustful gaze eventually won their heart and they looked fully into the sight of rebellion, they ate of the fruit and broke the fellowship they had with God. And because of this broken relationship, God, being just and holy, had to punish those who had rebelled against him. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 16 and 19, God punishes the woman by multiplying her pain in childbirth, and he punishes the man by giving them hard toil all the days of his life. And ultimately, the punishment for both was death. From dust they came, to dust they shall return. The punishment for Adam and Eve was separation from God and death. And so would be the punishment for everyone else who rebels and does not look to this holy God as their Lord and as their God. Second, we see time and time again the people of Israel, as previously mentioned in the book of Judges, turning from God and doing what was right in their own eyes, Seeing their turning away from God and their looking to idolatry, God punishes them according to their offense. We read in Judges chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they provoked the Lord to anger, so that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of the surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. And they were in terrible distress. Notice in verse 12, it specifically mentions that they abandoned the Lord who brought them out of the land of Egypt. Instead of looking to God, they were turning away and seeking out the idols of their enemy nations that pleased them instead. And what is the consequence of this? The Lord gave them over to their desires and punished them by allowing them to be captured, killed, robbed, and plundered. They desired the lands and the gods of the nations that God forbade, so God handed them over to their desires and used the surrounding nations to bring judgment to his own people. And we know that God does this, and this is true, as we read in Romans chapter 1, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. And I think the most clear example we see of God's righteous punishment for looking away from him comes from Genesis chapter 19 with Lot's wife. As you know in the story, Sodom and Gomorrah was a wicked city, evil in the eyes of God. Yet there was one righteous man living there. His name was Lot. God planned to destroy the city and its inhabitants, but desired to rescue Lot and his family. The morning of the destruction, two angels from God spoke to Lot. In Genesis chapter 19, verse 17, we read, And as they brought them out, one said, one of the angels, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And as Lot and his wife and his two daughters were fleeing, we read Genesis 19, verse 26. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. She disobeyed God by turning back 
and was killed on the spot. Now, is her looking back simply a glance to see all the commotion that was taking place? No, but rather, it was a longing to return back to that life. It was a longing to return back to the life of sin that they were living in. It was an active turning away from the very gracious and unmerited salvation of God and desiring licentious living in sin. And the consequence of that sin was death. And that is the consequence of all sin and of all those who look to sin and death rather than looking to God. Like Lot's wife, like Israel, we deserve punishment too. In Romans 3.23, we read, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have turned away from God and have looked to the sin and desires of our own hearts. And the punishment for our sin is death. The venom of sin runs deep through our veins and leads to our death and to our damnation. Just as the people of Israel turned away and grumbled against God and received the fiery serpents as punishment, so too do we receive punishment for our sin, which is death and hell. Just as the people died from the venomous bites of the serpent, so too do we perish from the far deadlier bite and venom of sin. And God is perfectly just in doing this. We, like Lot's wife and like Israel, have seen the salvation of God and yet have looked to sin instead. We justly deserve the punishment of death, and the eternal punishment for sin is hell, and it is not a mere physical death or a painful snake bite, but rather a place of eternal conscious torment because our sin of discontent idolatry is against a holy God, an eternal God, and so we justly deserve it. So first we have seen man's discontent always looking to something else other than God, despite his blessings on us. And secondly, we have seen God's just and holy punishment for man's discontent. Is that where this passage ends, though? Is the story of Israel and mankind one of rebellion, sin, and death alone? Is there hope for salvation and deliverance from the venom of sin? Is there an antidote? Point number three, looking to Jesus. I pray you are still with me. God is a God that is rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast love. He is just, and so he must justly punish sin, but he also provides grace to his children. Let's look again at Numbers chapter 21, verse 7. Please read with me. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. The people of Israel come to realize their wrongdoing. They realized how they have sinned against God by turning away from him and cursing him and his servant Moses. They realized the consequent and punishment for sin and they plead to Moses for the serpents to be taken away. This is their confession. This is their confession of sin. They are confessing their sin before God, seeking forgiveness, deliverance, and salvation from their sin. They plead with Moses in the latter part of verse 7. Read with me, verse 7 and onward. 
Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. I want you to look with me how interesting this is. The people of Israel asked for the serpents to be removed, but God does something different. And what God does differently is so much better. Instead, God tells Moses to make a pole with a bronze serpent on it and to post it in the midst of the people so that when they see it, they could look to it and could be saved from death. God doesn't simply answer their request to take the serpents away. They wanted them gone, but he doesn't remove them right away as they were asking. Is this cruel of God? Here the people have repented and confessed their sin, but he's not taking the serpent away. Why is this? Remember, to this point, many had been bitten and were still dying as a result. Simply having the snakes go away would not heal the wounds that had already infected many of the people of Israel, and many would have still died as a result of the poison in their bodies. God did not give them what they want, but being a good and gracious God, he gave them something far greater for them. God instead provides a means by which Israel can be saved and can be healed from their wounds. And so too with us, When someone comes to God, he doesn't just make their life easier and give them whatever they want, but rather he offers salvation from sin and death. If he were to simply remove our suffering, pain, and make our life filled with ease like many ask for to today, mankind would still face the inevitable end of death and would have to stand before God on the day of judgment. They would stand before God, yes, having had a nice life, but still stained and marred with sin. And mankind needs to be saved and freed from sin and its subsequent punishments. An example that is seen often in the church and one that I had learned in some of my studies for biblical counseling is when a married couple is having issues, they many times will come to a pastor or a biblical counselor and want help with their marriage. They try to come up with a solution or a compromise to provide a quick fix for their marriage. You know, if he does this, then it would solve that. If she just would do this, then everything would be easier. But the quick fix, as we know, won't solve anything. We need to address the root issues underneath all their disagreements. They need to address their love for God and their love for one another in order to be truly reconciled in their marriage. Many times they would get frustrated and try their quick fix or they'd leave the church with their marriage falling apart because they are focusing on the consequence of their problem rather than the root problem of itself inside their marriage. And so too with us. God doesn't give us the quick fix. He doesn't answer our simple request to make the consequence of sin go away, but rather he provides the means by which we can be saved from it. And what is that means of salvation? Israel had a bronze serpent, but what do we have to look to? We have Jesus Christ to look to. 
the God-man who is from eternity past, one with the Father and Spirit, came from heaven to earth, was born of the Virgin Mary, and lived the perfect life that we were called to live, commanding all to repent and believe and find life in him. He then ascended the cross and bore the full wrath of God to pay for the sins of the elect. He, like the bronze serpent, was lifted up that all who looked to him could have life and be saved from the consequence of their sin. He spoke of himself clearly being the fulfillment of this passage in John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. He spoke to Nicodemus about how one can be saved. He said in verse 14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus Christ became the ultimate sacrifice for sin. He, like the serpent in numbers, was lifted up so that all who looked to him would be delivered from sin and death. The sins of those who repent and believe were transferred to him upon the tree where he bore the complete wrath of God. Jesus Christ died upon that cross for sinful men. He was buried in the tomb after the vile serpent had struck his heel. Just as God spoke in Genesis 3, the serpent struck the heel of Christ on the cross, striking him with the poison of sin. That means that Christ died. And while the evil serpent thought that he was victorious for a time, Christ did not stay dead, but he rose again on the third day, crushing the head of the vile serpent Satan and bringing victory over, pow- over the power of sin and death, giving life to all who would repent and believe in him. Because he was struck by the poison of sin, we no longer have to be infected by it. He took the consequence for us, and he gave us life instead. He ascended into heaven where he now sits at God's mighty right hand, interceding on our behalf. We have forgiveness that will know no end. Just as God provided a way of salvation in Israel for those bitten by the serpent, so too does he provide salvation for those enslaved by the painful bite of sin through his son, Jesus Christ. So what must we do to receive this salvation? We have seen that God provided salvation to the people of Israel. So how do we receive this great salvation through Jesus Christ? The answer is quite simple. You look. You look to Jesus. Verse 9 again. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Just as the people of Israel looked to the serpent and lived, so too do all who look to Jesus Christ and to his sacrifice for sin upon the cross. Just as the serpent was lifted up for people to look at and be saved, so too Christ was lifted up on that dreadful tree so that all who looked to him could be saved. Now you may ask, what does it mean to look? Jesus' death was upon the cross happened 2,000 years ago, so there isn't any way I could physically look to Jesus. The word in the Hebrew for look carries the idea that it is more than just a glance or a physical looking and seeing, but rather is a looking with belief and understanding, believing that looking to the serpent in Israel would save them. Simply, saints, it's a look of faith. 
and a look of trust. Israel was trusting that what God said was true, and therefore they looked with confidence, believing that if they do, they will be saved from death and will live. The same is true for us today. For all who look to Jesus for salvation, who trust in him alone that he has the power to save by grace, through faith, will be saved. This is the very essence of the gospel, repentance and belief. The people of Israel have confessed their sin to God and are now looking to him for salvation, trusting that he can and will save them because they cannot save themselves. And for us, if we confess our sins to God, we turn from them and look to Jesus in faith, believing that he will save and redeem us because we cannot save ourselves. Just as Israel looked, believed, and lived, so too can we look, believe, and live. It was Jesus who devised and prescribed the antidote, meaning our salvation is a result of his great work. For all who look in trust to Christ, it is they that will be healed from their sin that is inside of them. For those who look to Christ in faith, their sin has been removed from within and placed upon him who can pay the penalty of sin. So the question I want to ask all of you this morning as we close is this. Are you looking to Jesus? Are you looking to him? Have you turned away from the sin of the world and have you looked to Jesus confessing your sin and trusting that he can deliver you from it? You cannot save yourself. There is nothing you can do to remove the venom of sin inside of you. Christ is the only antidote. He is the great physician and he comes to heal and remove the sting of sin and death from all who repent and believe in him. This is why we must look to him. To not do so would be certain death to us. As many of you know, three years ago I was diagnosed with a severe form of Crohn's disease. And it came to the point where I had parts that were so scarred and so damaged that they needed to be surgically removed. Up until that point, I had tried strict diets, exercising, and lots of different medication, but nothing was helping. Instead, it just kept getting worse and worse. I could not heal the damage that was inside of me, no matter what I tried. I needed a doctor. I needed a surgeon. I needed someone to go in and to remove the damage and make me well. If I had refused that treatment and continued to try and solve the problem on my own, it would have proven to be a fatal error. God, through Christ, comes in gentleness, kindness, and love and removes the damage. He removes the venom of sin inside of you. So stop trying to remove it yourself. You will never, ever, ever be good enough to remove the venom of sin in your heart. No amount of religion, no amount of works, no amount of charity you do can save you and remove the sin that lives inside of you. Only Christ can. Only Christ can save you. If you have not looked to him yet, do that today. Turn from your life of sin, of looking to idols, and look to Christ in faith, trusting and believing that he can and will save you. He is willing and he is able. As the beautiful hymn says, he is able, he is able, he is willing. Doubt no more. Doubt no more. Look to Jesus today in faith.
just like the thief on the cross looked to Jesus in faith in his dying hours, so too must you look to him to have life. These are your dying hours. You do not know when your soul will be required of you. And so I plead with you to look to Jesus today. Look to him in repentance and believe. Do not wait another second. Look to him in faith and be saved. Now, if you have put your faith in Christ, if you have looked to him and he has, by grace, redeemed you from your sin, the application for this passage is simple for you. You, too, need to look to Jesus. You may say, but I've already been saved. He has saved me. Praise God for that. Now, don't look away. Keep your eyes locked onto him. Keep them laser-focused upon that cross, lest you think you can do this walk on your own and start to look away. The gospel is, say, is necessary both for the saved and for the unsaved. I have two application questions for you, and then I will close. First, what does it mean for the believer to look to Jesus? What does it mean for a believer to look to Jesus? It means trusting in him daily, seeking him constantly, it means looking to him for sanctification, growing in a knowledge of him. It is relying on him always and for everything. It's looking and seeking him when we are weak, trusting that he will give us strength. It is looking to Jesus when we need forgiveness, knowing that he will forgive. Looking to him when you are filled with sorrow, pouring out your heart before him and believing that he will give you comfort. It's looking to him when you are filled with joy and praise for the great work that he has done in your life. Listen, saints, for you who are anxious, it means looking to him when you are anxious. In this crazy time in which we live, when you are full of trouble, you look to him knowing he will give you his peace. Stop looking to anything else, but look to Jesus without ceasing. Second and final question, how do we know we are looking to him? You told me how we look to him and salvation comes by looking to him, but how do I know? How do I know if I'm truly looking to Jesus or I'm looking to an idol? How do we know we're looking to him? You will know because you will have a heart that is content. You won't grumble against God like Israel did. You won't long for things of the world like you once did. You will be fighting sin and the desire to turn back to the world and your old way of life. You will have complete joy, peace, and satisfaction in your heart because you have Christ ever before you. That's how you know you're looking to him. I want to close by reading an excerpt from John Bunyan's masterpiece, The Pilgrim's Progress. Listen to how Bunyan describes Christian's experience of looking to the cross and finding salvation and peace in Christ's work upon it. Now I saw in my dream that the highway up which Christian was to go was fenced on either side with a wall that was called salvation. Up this way, therefore, did burden Christian run, but not without great difficulty because of the load on his back. He ran thus till he came to a place somewhat ascending. 
and upon that place stood a cross, and a little below in the bottom a tomb. And so I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up with the cross, his burden loosed from his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble. And so continued to do till it came to the mouth of the tomb where it fell in, and I saw it no more. Then Christian was glad and lightsome and said with a merry heart, He hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. And he stood a little while to look and wonder, for it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. He looked, therefore, and looked again, even till the springs that were in his head sent the water down his cheeks. Look to Jesus and be freed from the burden of sin and the venomous, painful bite of death that it brings. Look to Jesus and receive the gift of grace and life instead. Look to Jesus now and forever. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we come before you in forgiveness and humility, knowing how many times we have looked away, how many times we have looked back to a life of sin, how many times we have turned away from you. We don't want to, Father. We want to keep our eyes focused upon you. We want to gaze into such great beauty and grace. Forgive us, Lord, for ever looking away. Give us the strength, desire to love and look to you all of our days. Help us to persevere to the end, never drifting for a second, never turning back to the life of sin we once lived, never looking to the idols of this world, never looking for satisfaction, joy, and salvation, anything but you alone. Keep us, Father. We are so thankful that we are sealed by the Spirit. We are so thankful that we are sealed by the work of Christ upon the cross and that we cannot lose the salvation. But help us, Lord. Help us to persevere to the end. We love you and we long to see that day when we will see you face to face, when we will look upon your face in eternity and be gazing at you without the sinful blinders that are still on, in which the sinful world in which we still live in, Lord. Help us to that end. We know we are weak and so often failing. Thank you for the mercy you provide and you pour out in our lives. Thank you for your grace, Lord, that you've saved and redeemed us. And thank you for the promise of eternal life through your precious Son. I pray this in your name. Amen.